You're going to love this. Just love it. Promise. A little. Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast, and welcome to it. As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, and 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI, in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Columbus, Ohio, WGRN 94.1 FM. In Pallenville, New York, 102.9 FM WLPP. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And yes, streaming coast to coast and around the globe on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik five days a week. Blanketing Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me. From bradblog.com, thank you for joining us for another thrilling, action-packed adventure that we call the Bradcast. Coming up, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA, has gone to pot. Well... Yeah, I know. In any event, uh, late last week, they announced a, a new position of sorts on how marijuana is to be regarded by the federal government and its uh, various law enforcement agencies and uh, and whether they will finally ease up on the long held standards that have made it very, very difficult for otherwise legal pot dispensaries, both medical dispensaries and recreational around the country in dozens of states now where the sale of cannabis is now perfectly legal, um, whether those standards will be uh, changed to make it a little bit easier to do business for those companies or not. And um, their position, the DEA's position on policies for medical facilities to research the medicinal use of pot. So we've got some uh, both good and bad news there for marijuana advocates. And for uh, Friends of Freedom and stuff like that, we'll get to that uh, with my upcoming guest in just a very few minutes here. Uh, also, a little bit later, Desi Doyen and the uh, Green News Report. Hi, Des. Hey. Uh, boy, big Green News Report today. They're uh, always big. Well, there's, they, way, you know, you're right. there's way more Green News that we can shove into six minutes, you're but right. we do try. We do try. We do try. And uh, we, big news uh, with the floods down in Louisiana, the fires out here in California. Uh, huge news, frankly, concerning the uh, heat of the planet. Yeah. Uh, that's not good news. Uh, and also, uh, Dr. Jill Stein, uh, she's now the official Green Party nominee for president. And so now she gets the official Green News Report treatment, yeah. I guess. <laughs> if you want to call it that. That's the way to put it there. Yeah, yeah her position on uh, on climate change, as uh, Desi Doyen has been covering all of the... 
uh, candidates and nominees this year in the presidential race and how uh, what they plan to do, if anything, concerning climate change. Um, that story, uh, the, the, you know, the effects of this uh, are, are just hitting home more and more every day, but only if you pay attention. And they're certainly paying attention down there in Louisiana right now. Uh, the governor, Governor John Bell Edwards, uh, now says that some 40,000 homes are affected by the historic flooding down there. Yeah, it turns out that uh, extreme weather events are extremely expensive. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we keep every day we say historic this, historic that. Because it is historic, because we are hitting these marks that we have never hit before (sighs) again and again and again. And we've got, you know, idiots like uh, Donald Trump uh, talking about his love for oil, not talking about what the hell to do to save the planet. Uh, You know, as the things you've been reporting about, Desi Doyen, have been uh, coming to pass, I think it's safe to say, much earlier than Oh, it's definitely science, safe to say that, yeah, yes. It's happening uh, faster than scientists predicted, yes. J.K. Rowling, author of the Harry Potter books, uh, posted this tweet uh, that, that I love. You caught this, Des. The exist- she she uh, writes, uh, the existence of Twitter is forever validated by the following exchange. And she includes this uh, three-tweet back and forth from a, a woman by the name of Katie Mack, who calls herself Astro Katie. Uh, who tweets, honestly, climate change scares the heck out of me, and it makes me so sad to see what we're losing because of it. That's Katie Mack. Uh, She received this response from a guy by the name of Gary P. Jackson, uh, a Texan uh, conservative activist, he calls himself, a Ted Cruz supporter. He replies to uh, to Astro Katie to say, maybe you should learn some actual science then and stop listening to the criminals pushing the hashtag global warming scam in all caps. <laughs> uh, Katie Mack replies, I don't know, man. I already went and got a Ph.D. in astrophysics. Seems like more than that would be overkill at this point. <laughs> Good answer, Katie. Yes, that was uh, Katie Mack is actually Dr. Uh, Catherine J. Mack. She's an astrophysicist from Australia. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I think she may uh, may have learned some of the actual all caps science and she may be familiar with what is a scam and what isn't. Uh, anyway, love that. Wanted to note it. OK, before we get to my guest today, got a few horse race stories and a few track condition stories. Some of them sort of mixed up here that I, I want to uh, see if I can hit quickly. Uh, and of course, as you know, the corporate media, they only follow the horse race for for the most part, while we try to keep our eyes on both the horse race and the track conditions on which those horses are running since the track conditions uh, can make all the difference in the race itself. Okay, so, uh, Des, since you're going to be covering Jill Stein in uh, the Green News Report coming up, uh, another candidate on the ballot, aside from, uh, uh, you know, another third-party, I guess, candidate other than uh, Jill Stein and and Gary Johnson of the Libertarian Party, is this guy, this kind of random guy that no one's ever heard of by the name of Evan McMullen, who the... Never Trumpers, the Republican Never Trumpers seem to be putting up here. Um, And he's suddenly just a week or two ago announced uh, that he was going to try to get on the ballot. They finally the Never Trump people had their candidate. It's this guy who is a uh, a former CIA uh, official uh, works in uh, for Republican House candidates. 
In any event, he's trying to get on the ballot around the country and so far not having a whole hell of a lot of luck. Independent presidential candidate Evan McMullen has missed the cutoff for appearing on California's state ballot, according to a new report. McMullen's uh, campaign has not ruled out a lawsuit against California uh, concerning the election rules, according to Politico. Uh, on Monday, they had uh, reported that until uh, last Friday, candidates could have turned in the 178,039 registered signatures, which would have been needed for appearing on California's ballot. McMullen strategist Joel Searby confirmed that McMullen and his team had missed that deadline, leaving them searching for other options for getting the CIA veteran before California's voters, including that lawsuit, including uh, running some sort of a write-in campaign out here in California. Uh, McMullen's campaign announced on Monday that the former GOP House official will appear on Utah's ballot. Politico says McMullen needed only 1,000 signatures in the uh, in the Beehive State in Utah, where he is also locating his campaign headquarters. Well, I could have gotten on the Utah ballot. 1,000 <laughs> signatures? Say. That's say. Now I've got an idea. Um, McMullen had already uh, missed filing deadlines necessary for appearing on the ballot in about two dozen other states. Uh, his strategist, Sirby, uh, said that he did make the ballot in Colorado ahead of this November's general presidential election. So he'll be on the ballot in Colorado and in Utah for whatever that is worth. They say Colorado is the first of many states to come as our ballot access program kicks into high gear and Evan takes his message nationwide. OK. Uh, good luck with that. Unclear what that message is. However, when he officially launched his uh, his bid for the White House on August 8, he attacked both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton about Trump. He said uh, he appeals to the worst fears of Americans at a time when we need unity, not division. And about Hillary Clinton, he said she is a, a corrupt career politician who has recklessly handled classified information in an attempt to avoid accountability and put American lives at risk, including those of my colleagues said the uh, the former, I guess, former CIA uh, <laughs> the agent, veteran. Uh, in any case, that's uh, the plight of Evan McMullen, and we'll see if uh, if he's able to appear in, you know, on ballots around the country. Right now, it seems to me that if you're on enough ballots to uh, to win the presidency, to win the 270 electoral votes that would be needed to win the uh, White House, then you should be allowed in the presidential uh, debates. The Commission on Presidential Debates, however, feels differently about that, and they have uh, now announced the name of the polls that they will use to decide the participants of September's first presidential debate, mark it down, uh, coming up on September 26. Yes. Um, so they've decided now which polls that they will use. Candidates need to hit an average of 15 percent, an average of 15 percent. The Commission on Presidential Debate says uh, in polls conducted by ABC Washington Post, CBS New York Times, CNN Opinion Research, uh, Fox News and NBC Wall Street Journal. The 15 percent threshold has been announced uh, months ago, but the commission has just now released which of the polls that they will use to determine that 15 percent average. Democratic presidential nominees Hillary Clinton and Republican uh, uh, Donald Trump are virtually assured a slot on the stage, according to The Hill. 
we'll see if Trump's polls keep dropping. Anyway, any event, uh, yeah, he'll he'll probably be there. You think? Yeah, September 26th at Hofstra University in Hempstead, New York, is where it is. But it, uh, but they say that it remains unlikely that a third party candidate will join them. Uh, despite the unpopularity of both Clinton and Trump, as of Monday, neither the Libertarian Party's nominee, Gary Johnson, nor Green Party's nominee, Jill Stein, would qualify. Neither has come close to even hitting 15 percent in any qualifying poll, much less averaging it across those polls. A representative with the commission, which does a hell of a job of, of continuing the two-party duopoly in this country. Uh, the representative of the commission told The Hill uh, that the polling averages only include the polls where a candidate is actually tested, where a, you know, a candidate is actually included in the polls. Right now, Johnson and Stein are not in. They're not even asked uh, about to respondents in a number of these polls. Currently, Johnson averages about 9% in the three most recent qualifying polls. Jill Stein uh, has just under 5% average in those polls. In Fox News' most recent poll, Johnson, however, scored 12 points, but the poll didn't even bother to include Jill Stein. CBS didn't attest either candidate in its most recent poll. So as far as the system being rigged, as Donald Trump likes to say, yeah, at, at this rate, at least in, in regard to this and in regard to who gets to participate in these debates, it is certainly rigged against candidates who do not happen to be Democratic or Republican. Uh, okay, do I've got you? Uh, yeah, I got a minute or two here. Let me hit this real quick. Um, in Illinois, late on Friday, uh, the uh, state's Republican governor, Bruce Rauner, vetoed a bill that would have made the state the sixth in the nation to automatically register millions of voters. Rauner expressed some support for the policy back in May, telling reporters, I'm a big fan of simplifying the voter registration process and trying to get everyone who should be able to vote to get them registered and vote. You'll be shocked to learn that by, uh, by early August, when it was time to, uh, to sign this bill, he had a very different view. He wrote in his veto notice late last week, quote, the consequences could be injurious to our election system. He urged legislators... Uh, to make reforms to the bill before sending it back to them, citing uh, the threat of non-citizens registering to vote and to cast ballots, which almost never happens. Study after study finds that it uh, rarely happens. Uh, in the meantime, some two million more voters in Illinois might have otherwise been automatically registered under this bill. Uh, which uh, would mean that when Illinois residents go into the Department of Motor Vehicles or the Office of Human Services, et cetera, they are automatically registered to vote, which makes sense. Because right now, under federal law, when they voters or when people go into those offices, they're supposed to be asked whether they want to register to vote. And if the answer is yes, they're given a form. They had to fill out the form, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact is, the DMV and these other offices already have all the information they need. There is no reason to have the person fill out the form and then have it typed in and uh, possibly have typos and problems when they actually go to vote because there's been a typo, et cetera, et cetera. But all of a sudden, the Republican governor uh, isn't interested and uh, voting rights advocates say that he wants to uh, put it off until 2019 after the next gubernatorial election. 
That said, the Illinois state legislature is uh, overwhelmingly uh, Democratic, and they could now vote to override the veto. If they do, then the state would launch the program in uh, in 2018 before the Republican governor's next election. So there's that. All right, a quick break, and we are back with uh, your right to uh, light it up or lack thereof. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is the Bradcast. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to keep doing so, now more than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going, or even just a one-time-only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions those horses are running on. Because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy by taking about 60 seconds right now to stop by bradblog.com donate today. And thanks. Hold on to me, don't let me go Who cares what they see, who cares what they know Your first name is free, last name is dumb Cause you still believe in where we're from Welcome back to the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here uh, late last week, the Obama administration announced that marijuana will remain on the list of the most dangerous drugs, fully rebuffing growing support across the country for broad legalization, AP reports. But the administration said it will allow research, more research at least, into its medical uses. Heroin, peyote, and marijuana, among others, are considered Schedule One drugs because they have no medical application. Cocaine and opiates, for example, have medical uses and, while still illegal for recreational use, are designated Schedule II drugs. The Drug Enforcement Administration said the agency's decision came after a lengthy review and consultation with the Health and Human Services Department, which said marijuana has a high potential for abuse, unquote, and, quote, no accepted medical use. That decision means that pot will remain illegal for any purpose, at least under federal law, despite laws in some 25 states and the District of Columbia that have legalized pot for either medicinal or recreational use. Democrats in particular, uh, particularly those from blue states, slammed the Obama administration's announcement. Bernie Sanders tweeted right afterwards that uh, people can argue about the pluses and minuses of marijuana, but everyone knows it's not a killer drug like heroin. Ted Lieu, Democrat from California, said that the DEA should be spending its limited resources on targeting high-priority narcotics rather than erecting roadblocks to medical marijuana. 
Congressman Jared Paulus from the Democrat from Colorado said the the Drug Enforcement Administration's decision to keep marijuana as a Schedule One drug is frustrating, unscientific, and frankly out of touch. And, uh, well, there's a list of uh, Democrats from largely not just from uh, uh, Democratic states, but also from Democratic states that have allowed uh, either medical marijuana or recreational marijuana. Michael Collins, the deputy director of national affairs for the Drug Policy Alliance, which supports marijuana policy, is quoted by the AP saying that in reality, marijuana should be descheduled. And states should be allowed to set their own policy. Collins went on to say he considers the DEA's decision to be one that puts politics above science. Well, that's interesting, given that uh, Democrats have been uh, slamming Republicans for so long for ignoring the science on things like global warming. Here to talk about all of this is Michael Collins. He is the policy manager for Drug Policy Alliance's Office of National Affairs in Washington, D.C., where he works with Congress on a wide variety of drug policy issues, including sentencing reform, marijuana reform and related budget issues. Michael Collins, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Good to be back. Thanks for having me again. Great to have you here. All right. So now I believe uh, there was both good news and uh, at least a little bit of good news and bad news in that announcement from uh, from the DEA last week. Let's start first with the bad news or at least the the news that seems to have infuriated so many Democrats like Bernie Sanders and others. I notice in uh, all of these guys are in largely safe Democratic states, at least the ones making a lot of noise about this decision. So. Marijuana will remain for now classified as a Schedule One drug by the U.S. federal government. What does that mean on a uh, both a practical and a legal level for the moment? I mean, on a legal level, it doesn't really mean anything. I think we recognize that the DEA was never going to do anything beyond move marijuana to Schedule Two, and so the fact that they didn't move marijuana to Schedule Two. Um, doesn't really have an impact in terms of the legality of marijuana. Like, you have drugs that are Schedule 1 that are legal. You have drugs that are Schedule 2 that are, Ill- that are also sorry illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for example, cocaine is a Schedule 2 drug. So moving marijuana from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2 wouldn't have really done anything. I think symbolically it would have been a victory because drugs in Schedule 2, you are recognizing that there is some medicinal benefit but in terms of you know prosecutions people getting arrested the racial disparities that we see because of the war in marijuana that would not have disappeared had the DEA rescheduled marijuana Um, so you know the decision overall is a bit of a mixed bag because Mm -hmm. the rescheduling piece we were disappointed in because it would have been a symbolic victory and it would have kind of moved the DEA a step in the right direction but the other part of the decision, which was ending the so-called NIDA monopoly, was a, a real positive step from our point of view. What, what's that monopoly? It's called the NIDA monopoly. So basically, um, when you are a researcher and you want to research marijuana, let's say, for example, mm-hmm. I want to research a very specific strain of marijuana and see its impact on PTSD, mm-hmm. When I apply to do research, Mm -hmm. the marijuana itself can only be grown in one place. That's a place in Mississippi that's run by NIDA, the National Ah. Institute for Drug Abuse. Now, DEA has said historically that they are only able to allow one place 
to grow marijuana. Now, the impact of that on research is really quite devastating because, you know, for example, me that is applying to research marijuana for PTSD, mm-hmm. if this place in Mississippi that doesn't uh, that, that, that grows marijuana says, well, you know, we don't have that strain, mm-hmm. or you're going to have to wait two years for us to grow that, or something like that, that essentially puts the kibosh on any research that you want to do. And beyond rescheduling and Schedule 1 and Schedule 2, the number one complaint from people who want to research marijuana has been this NIDA monopoly, the fact that mm-hmm. there is only one place to research marijuana. And, and so it's really slowed down research. And so they said in the decision last week that now they would allow for multiple institutions universities and private institutions to apply to actually grow marijuana for research so, so that's a positive step so that's a step in the right direction at least but what w- they say there is no medical purpose and i want to focus on this for a moment you know no medical uh, use uh, for marijuana. Now, cocaine, as noted in that AP, AP story, is a Schedule 2 drug. So when we're talking about Schedule 1 and Schedule 2, it's not necessarily a difference in the, it's not a measure of the harm or danger concerning those drugs, correct? It's just whether there is considered to be a, a, a medical use, a medical purpose uh, for the drugs in the, in the difference yeah, in the it's, schedule? Yeah, it's, 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 you know, it's fair. I think scheduling the best way to understand it is, you know, around research and how mm-hmm. easy something is to research. Mm-hmm. So, for example, something that's Schedule 1, um, they are saying there's no medicinal benefit, therefore there are very, very, very strict protocols in terms of your ability to research it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have to have a lab that has, like, CCTV. You have to have security when you're handling the product. You know, it's really like handling sort of the crown jewels, if you like. <laughs> Whereas Schedule 2, things are a little bit, you know, less strict and you don't have to have the same protocols. There's also the stigma of a drug being Schedule 1. You know, researchers can have a Schedule 1 license, but they're very hard to come by. You know, a lot more researchers will have Schedule 2 licenses Mm. and they are scared off researching marijuana because of the stigma that it is a Schedule 1 substance. It's kind of remarkable just on on, on the surface for uh, you know people who aren't familiar with this at all to think that somehow cocaine is a Schedule 2 drug, that there are some medicinal purposes for that, but they haven't been able to figure it out for pot. Now, I, I believe, at least according to the DEA announcement and the federal government, now I believe the, the article says 24, I'm sorry, 25 different states plus Washington, D.C. now make med- medical marijuana available legally so how can it be, Michael Collins, that those states have found uh, a medical purpose for marijuana, but the federal government has not? Uh, who essentially who has it right when it comes to science, and and you know who has the science to back them up at this point? The states or the federal government here? Why this distinction? Well, I was interested that you mentioned global warming earlier on because I think the DEA gets its science from the same people as climate change deniers. Mm. You know, they will put out a report, a very long report, you know, sort of justifying their position. Mm-hmm. But I think to say that marijuana has no recognized medicinal value contradicts decades of science and research and is a huge slap in the face to the thousands of people who use medical marijuana every day to alleviate their illnesses. And to be fair, we should say that the Democratic Party platform itself, at least, if not calling for um, uh, 
for for making it legal or for calling for mar- medical marijuana. I think they, uh, the platform at least has called to reschedule the drug from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2. Is that is is that what they were able to eke out of the uh, Democratic Party platform this year? I, I, I believe so. I believe yeah. they said that they wanted to let, uh, let states set their own policies as well, which is very similar to what the Obama administration's position is just now. But I did note with, it, I did note with interest that Hillary Clinton's campaign was quick off the mark to say that she would reschedule to Schedule 2 mm-hmm. and that she believed that, you know, she was happy for, uh, I think, what she called state experiments to go forward, meaning that she has no intention of shutting down you know, Colorado and Washington State. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things about the, the, the DEA's decision, if you read between the lines, we're sort of in this um, twilight zone with them, to be honest, because, <laughs> the DEA, because the DEA keeps marijuana at Schedule 1, federally approved research is restricted. But then the DEA will tell you that we must keep marijuana at Schedule 1 because there isn't enough federally approved research. So we're kind of in this vicious cycle that is the creation of the DEA. So, um, you know, it's very challenging even still to get research done. Keeping it as Schedule 1 is going Mm. to just be even more challenging. But I think, like, the reaction to this and the reaction to your listeners is going to be one of, um, you know, this this is frankly unbelievable that we're now in 2016 with 25 states that have medical marijuana and the DEA is still seeing there is zero bet zero medical benefit for this. I think that doesn't really stand the laughter test. No, it doesn't. And as a a policy manager uh, on this in Washington, D.C., working closely with folks in Congress, I'm trying to figure out. I I know there are a number of federal agencies, for example, like the IRS, who, though though they're living essentially in, in the executive branch, they're actually independent agencies. So, I'm wondering, and I don't know how the DEA works in that regard, how much direct control does the Obama administration have over its own DEA in, in making an announcement like this? In other words, can we can we see that this is the Obama administration refusing to reclassify marijuana, or is this elements within the DEA over which Obama has no actual control at this point? Well, I think you ask a very interesting question because on the face of it, obviously the Drug Enforcement Administration is part of the Obama administration, but throughout uh, President Obama's term, the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, has been a rogue agency. You know, President Obama has taken steps to unwind the war on drugs and move away from the war on drugs, you know, have more of an emphasis on treatment, um, he's pushing sentencing reform. Mm-hmm. You know, folks in the DEA are not happy about that. You know, they're still fighting the drug war of Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon. Mm. And, you know, it was very clear that that was the case even a couple of years ago when Michelle Linhart was the the the, um, the head of the DEA. Mm-hmm. And she, for example, testified before Congress that she did support mandatory minimums and mandatory minimums were a useful tool. This is at the same time as, you know, then Attorney General Eric Holder was saying that, you know, mandatory minimums should not be used and they're not effective and we should be reforming our laws. So time and again, you've seen uh, the DEA as a rogue agency. I mean, that's ultimately what led to Michelle Linhart getting pushed out last year. She was very out of step with the Obama administration. Chuck Rosenberg, the new head of the DEA, I think there was some hope that uh, you know, he would be able to reform the agency, but it really is rotten to the core. And mm. I think what we're seeing now is, you know, meet the new head of the DEA, same as 
you know, same <laughs> as the old head of the DEA, yeah. and it's deja vu all over again. But uh, not to give to uh, the Obama, Obama himself, I guess, too much of a pass here. I mean, does he have the ability, this, this agency is under the executive branch, if he wanted to, he could come out and call for, I guess, uh, contradict his own DEA and say, I believe this should happen. Could could he not? I, I guess he can't make well, it I happen. Well, I think process-wise, I think if the president and if the White House themselves had been more directly involved in this process, mm-hmm. then we would have had another outcome. But what you've seen is, you know, I don't think the White House was involved at all. I don't think this is their top priority. I don't think, you know, the president is very interested in this issue, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Um, you know, he'll respond to questions when he's asked, but he's never been proactive on this issue. He's never been willing to kind of openly discuss it, which is a big contradiction given his own marijuana use yeah. over the years. And I think, you know, this was a point in time where we needed some leadership. Um, this was a point in time where you needed someone to sort of uh, be quite forceful with the DEA and say, look, guy, you guys are living in the past. This is not smart scientifically, this is not smart politically, you know, we are now being left behind in terms of what direction the country is going, and we're going to look very silly if we do this, but obviously that input was not received, I don't think there was any real dialogue between, you know, the President and the DEA, I think they were left to make this decision by themselves, and that's why we have this uh, ridiculous decision coming out. Michael Collins, how much uh, money, I guess in in just sort of round numbers here, how much money are we talking about that is sort of being left on the table or or rather, I guess, left in the black market here? I know there was... uh, uh, I, I want to say half a billion. Here we go. Senator Jeff Merkley, the Democrat from Oregon, uh, he uh, argued that the DEA's decision continued to leave states such as his in a legal penumbra. He says uh, in Oregon alone, it's estimated that the marijuana market could bring in close to half a billion dollars in revenue all in cash during its first 14 months of legal sales. And we'll get to that uh, cash business and the banking around this in, in a moment. But what kind of numbers are we talking about here as far as, uh, I mean, is, is this known? Is there a, a, an, an amount of money, of, of tax re- revenue, either to state or federal interest that could be brought in if we did away with this silly uh, prohibition on marijuana? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's one important thing to see. Like, moving from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2 wouldn't have fixed a lot of those banking issues. Like, ultimately, you do, as you say, need to end federal prohibition. You know, it's going to be very interesting to see, you know, financially the impact of um, California this year. Mm -hmm. You know, the polling looks very good. That's a huge state. That's a huge market. Um, You know, there's also uh, Arizona, Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. Maine and Nevada are looking to legalize marijuana this year. That's, you know, you're almost doubling, you're more than doubling the number of states that have legal marijuana, and that's going to increase the pressure on the federal government to end this federal prohibition and sort of fix the banking laws and let states set their own policy, because right now this is, you know, it's already an untenable policy that they have, you know, where this is not working, federal prohibition isn't working on any level and so it should just be removed together but it's certainly going to be the case you know after november that we need to fix this and we need to fix this right away senator uh, merkley went on to say that the federal government shouldn't force oregon's legal marijuana businesses to carry gym bags full of cash 
to pay their taxes, their employees and their bills. It's clear that uh, now Congress must take action to end the confusing patchwork of state and federal laws and regulations so that businesses in states that have legalized medicinal and recreational marijuana can access banking services um, and and to allow additional federal research and the veterans affairs doctors uh, to finally, they they can't even discuss medical marijuana with their patients. But uh, for the banking laws, uh, is that still where we are? I've seen conflicting uh, information on this. Uh, are, are these uh, medical or these marijuana dispensaries, uh, medical or otherwise, still keeping you know safes full of cash in their? Uh, they can't take credit cards. They can't. Uh, do they literally pay their taxes with cash every year? Yeah, I mean it's it's a disastrous policy, but that's very much the status quo because you cannot access these these businesses cannot act so so federal law governs the banking law and because marijuana is illegal under federal law the banks have decided that they cannot take uh you know they cannot take legal drug money you know they'll often Mm -hmm. take illegal drug money as you probably know but they've decided you know for legal reasons they cannot take uh, marijuana business money even though it's legal under state law i mean the net impact of that is really quite devastating and there's a human cost here where you know we saw a case last year sorry not last year earlier this year in denver where a security guard was killed at a marijuana dispensary and these places are employing uh security guards they're employing armed guards they're employing sort of armor vehicles um, because they are cash-only businesses, and because they're cash-only businesses, they are ripe for, you know, uh, robbery. And that's what we saw in mm. Colorado earlier this year. And you know, a young man lost his life. And you know, these policies have like a real-world impact. You know, federal prohibition has a devastating impact. You know, drug testing is another area. If you have, a, if you are, you know, living in a medical marijuana state. Um, but you're you're federally employed. You know, in Maryland, for example, that's going to be the case for a lot of people. You have to be really careful because if you get drug tested and you test positive for marijuana, even though your doctor may have recommended it, you can be fired. Um, immigration is another issue. You know, you can be uh, here with a green card, you know, legally. Mm-hmm. You're not a U.S. citizen, but if you use medical marijuana in one of the states where it's legal, and you know you're pulled over by the feds you are open to being deported um Mm. those are real world consequences of federal prohibition and it's just a policy that has failed you know i haven't even touched on the fact that you know the majority of marijuana arrests affect people of color but that's worth noting as well but this is something that we have to move soon and we have to end this destructive and racially biased policy as soon as possible it's it's kind of nuts uh, i got just a minute or two left with you michael collins uh is there any movement in congress i know you work with uh with, with congressional lawmakers is there any movement in congress to do what merkley and these other folks and what you're talking about is is there any move to actually get something done i mean republicans pretend they would like to ease regulations after all right they want to get rid of uh regulation so is there so why aren't the republicans leading the way here and is there any move uh, in congress to actually see anything done we all kind of know the problem but uh, nothing seems to even be uh, under discussion up in congress 
Yeah, well, actually, I think a lot is going on here. Um, you know, the, 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 the actual, actually, the, the pressure that was brought to bear on the DEA and the decision that the DEA was ultimately pushed into making, um, you know, that came about as a result of congressional pressure. You know, Senator Warren, Senator Booker, Senator Gillibrand have been very involved in this. Rand Paul on the Republican side has been a big champion of this. Dana Rohrbacher of California is another Republican who's been very involved in this. And so there's been a lot of movement there, and I think that the, the decision, you know, the DEA was slow-walking this decision for a number of years, mm. and a constant sort of steady stream of letters from senators meant that, especially Elizabeth Warren, actually, because she's quite feared by, uh, you know, uh, mm. a number of different federal agencies for various reasons. Good. I think that she, you know, her involvement has been very crucial in moving the DEA on these issues. I think that you know, the, 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 there's a lot... If, if you put a bill on the floor tomorrow that would end federal prohibition of medical marijuana, it would pass. It would pass House. It would pass the Senate. The question is, you know, the leadership, Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, are not interested in this, so we have to focus on moving them. But certainly, you know, as I said, like, we're going to go into 2017 uh, with a whole new bunch of states that have legalized marijuana and what does that mean in terms of the federal level well you know you mentioned jeff merkley jeff merkley is very much on board with ending federal prohibition because his own state oregon is a legal marijuana state you know and this is kind of the trajectory of individuals they get more involved in this and more interested when it affects their state you know lisa murkowski who's a republican from alaska she's been very involved in voting for you know, kind of allowing states to set their own policy in the area of marijuana because Alaska is a legal marijuana state. Mm -hmm. And when you think about states like Arizona, which is a very red state, Nevada, which is a kind of purple state, and then also Maine, um, which has a Republican and an independent center, we're kind of adding people to the club, if you like, mm -hmm. and that's going to increase pressure, potentially another 10 senators and God knows how many members of Congress will be on board with ending prohibition because it affects their state and their state has voted that way. And so, you know, that's going to increase pressure. And then, you know, we've got a new administration next year that's, you know, hopefully the Clinton administration that would be more open to, uh, you know, reforming marijuana laws and, you know, we'll see the writing on the wall. I think Obama, to a certain extent, has kind of passed the buck on this. Mm. Um and well, so it's up to the Clinton, it will be up to, you know, the Clinton administration to deal with this issue. It, yeah, if it's a Clinton administration. And I've never really understood why Republicans, especially right now, with the trouble that they're in, why they're not taking more of a lead. Uh, seems like they'd get a lot of young voters if they did. So it'll be on the ballot in California, Arizona, Maine and Nevada this uh, this year, and Michael Collins. Ma did I say? Did you say Massachusetts? Massachusetts uh, as well. Massachusetts as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Five, well. Five states. Okay. So that will uh, start to change things if it passes. It's been on the uh, on the ballot out here in California in the past and hasn't succeeded. Before I let you go, uh, Michael Collins, we we reported recently that there was actually that there has been a, a an actual decrease in the use. In, in the use of uh, pot among teenagers in Colorado 
since they made it legal for recreational use. Very quickly, what else have we empirically learned from the states where marijuana is now being legally sold uh, for recreational use, such as Colorado and Oregon? Are there other myths that have been uh, disabused in, in those states yet, to your knowledge? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean we haven't seen um, you know an, an, an increase in DUIs. Um, we haven't seen... Uh, you know, you may, we've seen a, a reduction in arrests. Like mm-hmm. one of the one of the kind of motivating factors for legalizing marijuana is kind of reducing the number of arrests that ruin people's lives. So you're obviously by making it legal, you're seeing a reduction in arrests. Um, the revenue generated there has been quite substantial. You know, for in terms of um, you know going back into you know government coffers to be spent on various different social projects. Um, you know, I think what we've also seen as well is kind of uh, increase in tourism mm. as a result of it. Mm. I think one thing I'll say, and this is quite interesting from a California perspective, you know, you often see politicians, politicians are the last people to lead on any issue, but nice. marijuana, they're often behind the times. But what we've seen in Colorado is, like, once the state legalizes, like, everybody gets on board and everybody says, well, actually, like, the sky hasn't fallen, this is not a terrible policy, you know, this is actually fine, things are working, you know, life goes on, and this is just another thing that has to be worked out. And that's very much the case in Colorado, you know, like, if you go to Colorado, if you went to Colorado before they legalized marijuana, you know, the opposition campaign was saying, you know, we're going to have drug addicts in the street, and we're going to have people crashing our car, and nobody's going to show up for work, and the sky's going to fall, and mm-hmm. that's just not happened, you know, and all the scare stories uh, that you hear coming out of Colorado you know, are, are, are often not accurate and they're just media stories. And so I think that's a big success story there. And what we, we hear a lot about Colorado, but obviously you have Washington, Oregon, Alaska as well moving forward with their legalization campaigns. And, you know, like I said, we're going to add a number of states this year. And so, you know, the question now for a lot of people isn't, you know, should we legalize marijuana, but more when do we legalize mm-hmm. marijuana? You know, mm-hmm. because it's coming, it's coming to a state near you very soon. And there's a ton of momentum behind it, and the the end is nigh, as they say. Yeah, well, the wheels of democracy do grind very slowly, and you're absolutely right. They are led by uh, uh, voters, not by the politicians. So if the voters uh, show up this year in places like California, Arizona, Maine, Massachusetts, Nevada... Those wheels will continue to roll. Don't wait for the politicians, voters. Get out there and make your voice heard. Michael Collins, uh, Policy Manager for Drug Policy Alliance's Office of National Affairs in Washington, D.C. Always great to catch up with you, Michael, and I suspect Always we're going to have Brad. a lot to talk about in the near future. Keep up the good work, sir. Thank you. You too. Thank Take you, brother. Care. Thank you. All right, a quick break, and we are back with more rubber. Very green show today, Desi Doyen. <laughs> yes, I'm is. starting to notice on a number of levels. All right, a quick break, and we're back with the Green News Report and the uh, the Green Party nominee, Jill Stein, and her position on green stuff. All of that and more straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now.
I see a candlelight down in the little green valley. Oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> a little mix it up a little bit. Yeah. Well done. Uh, welcome back to your little green valley, otherwise known as the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, green, uh, a green day indeed. Oh, you could have played Green Day, Des. Oh, there you anyway, go. Anyway, uh, yeah, all right. Well, let's let's get to this because there's a lot in this uh, Green News report and a lot of uh, fast-moving stories, actually, that uh, I think we've got several follow-ups already on this. So let's get to it. Our latest Green News report. A catastrophic situation across southern Louisiana. Another historic, deadly rainfall event hits the U.S., this time in Louisiana. This continues to be... Uh, the epicenter of fire activity the past two years with these drought conditions. Another wildfire in California forces 4,000 to evacuate. July 2016 was the hottest month ever recorded. Plus, I would create a Green New Deal that also solves the emergency of climate change. Dr. Jill Stein is now officially the Green Party's nominee for president. We'll tell you her position on climate change. She's against it? Yes. <laughs> All of those surprises and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. I said, keep the oil. Keep the oil. Keep the oil. Don't let somebody else get it. Well, you certainly don't get it, Mr. Trump. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, Jill Stein of the Green Party has been the presumptive nominee for so long that when she actually became the nominee last week, we sort of failed to take notice here in the Green News Report. Yes, my apologies for that, but we will rectify that shortly. Very good. But first, another record extreme rainfall event has hit the U.S., this time in Louisiana. Over the weekend, intense storms dumped nearly two feet of rain in just 24 hours in some areas. Eleven rivers shattered all-time flood records. Seven people are confirmed dead so far. More than 20,000 water rescues and some 10,000 people now housed in shelters. Motorists were trapped on a stretch of interstate for nearly 24 hours, and even the governor's mansion was evacuated. Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards asked residents to heed evacuation orders in this unprecedented disaster. Because these are record floods, we don't. this is unprecedented, so we don't have uh, records that we can go back and see who all is going to be impacted? Governor Edwards and President Obama have both issued disaster declarations. This is the third flood disaster in Louisiana since March. It's the eighth extreme rainfall event in the U.S. just this year alone. A lot of extreme, historic, unprecedented weather disasters going on lately for some odd reason. Yeah, you notice that? I do, but a lot of Americans don't because, frankly, the corporate media barely covers it and certainly doesn't connect the climate change dots. So thank you for doing so. Well, it's the opposite situation in drought-stricken California, where a new out-of-control wildfire in rural Lake County, north of San Francisco, has forced 4,000 to evacuate, destroyed more than 175 structures, and it's the fourth major fire to hit Lake County in the last two years. It has residents asking if this is their new normal. 7,000 firefighters are now battling 11 major 
major fires in California after five years of historic drought and a string of record-breaking heat waves since March. Mm. Meanwhile, July 2016 wasn't just hot. It was the hottest month ever recorded in human history. According to data released by NASA this week, July 2016 was the hottest month for the planet since instrumental records began in 1880. Overall, NASA found global average surface temperatures during July hit 1.5 degrees Fahrenheit above the 20th century average, beating all previous Julys, meaning 2016 is virtually guaranteed to be the third year in a row of the hottest year on record. So July was not just the hottest July ever recorded, it was the hottest month ever recorded on planet Earth. Yep. Okay. Finally, the Green Party has officially nominated Dr. Jill Stein as its presidential candidate for the 2016 election. Well, thanks for letting us know. You're welcome. We've been reporting on each party nominee's position on climate change, and Dr. Stein not only accepts the science, but she has a detailed plan to deal with it. She's the only one whose policies and rhetoric match the scale and magnitude of the task of solving climate change. In an interview with CNBC, Stein called for a wartime level of mobilization on climate climate change, creating jobs through massive expansion of renewable energy infrastructure. We need an emergency jobs program like the New Deal that got us out of the Great Depression. I would create a Green New Deal that also solves the emergency of climate change. Her platform calls for an ambitious goal to transition to 100 percent renewable energy by 2030, ending all fossil fuel extraction, building renewable energy infrastructure by investing in public transit, sustainable agriculture and conservation. She also calls for labeling GMOs and putting a moratorium on GMOs and pesticides until they're proven safe. Now, her plans would be paid for in part by ending wars for oil and by savings in public health costs caused by pollution. Now, it's hard to say for sure if her numbers add up because we're talking about a very complex energy system totaling trillions of dollars. But I will say this, her rhetoric about taking this on as a wartime effort is absolutely right. And I'd like to hear that from the other candidates as well. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. It's not that easy. So sad. So sad. Well, I don't know. Kinda? She's she's got a great agenda. Let's uh, well, say that I, she does. But but uh, sad song. Yes. In, in any event, uh, we've got a number of updates before we get out here, Desi Doyen, with these um, uh, in both the fire California fire, fire stories and the flooding stories in Los in Louisiana that have come about just since we put together today's Green News report. So uh, first in California. Yes, in California, there was an arrest. There has been an arrest of an arsonist suspect. Uh, he's been charged with 17 counts of setting fires deliberately, but police have not described what evidence led them to him. And they have not said specifically other than this current uh, fire that we just reported on. Other than that, they haven't said what fire they think he might have set. So this is the uh, Lake County. He's a suspect in the Lake County fire yes, that has been that, so terrible up there. Right. And uh, in Louisiana now, we reported uh, 20,000 rescued. 20,000. 
people rescued from this flooding. That number has already uh, blown up. Yes, now it's 30,000 estimated people have been rescued. And uh, unfortunately, wow. the death toll has also gone up to 11. Probably will go higher. So uh, we had it at 7. It's now up to 11. And that's in Louisiana. They're also uh, fighting this, dealing with the same floods in uh, in Mississippi. Are yeah, they that's not? right. Storms don't uh, respect boundaries. So this is also <laughs> falling on Mississippi. But I haven't gotten uh, updated uh, totals Mm -hmm. for that one yet. Wow. Uh, Just amazing. And uh, and amazing that it is not more a part of the conversation in in the presidential race. Of course, Des, we say that every four years, it seems. Yeah, well, we say that in pretty much all elections because this is extremely important. And it's not only important on the presidential election uh, level, but on the House and Senate and state legislature and county level as well, because right now we are seeing the impacts of natural disasters that are turbocharged by climate change. These are expensive. You know, the the Louisiana, the what was it, 40,000 40, homes have been yep. impacted. That's going to cost a lot of money in insurance and in infrastructure repairs. You know, these have actual real world costs that are going to continue to unfold. Some of these impacts are unfortunately baked in because we've taken so long to take any action. So with that expense, we need to make sure that we are electing people who care about preparing for impacts that are to come. Well, good luck with that. (laughs) Uh, Thanks uh, to our producer, Desi Doyen. Uh, To my guest today, Michael Collins of the Drug Policy Alliance, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it as ever for free at bradblog.com or over at iTunes, where we hope you'll leave us a good review, or at your favorite podcast site, Uh, Let's see. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And you can find, follow, and harass me on the Twitters and the Facebooks at TheBradBlog. That is it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. (laughs) 